You are listening to the Academy Securities Geopolitical and Macro Strategy Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Robinson, and this episode is recording from a webinar we held on Friday, January 13th, 2023. Here's Rachel Washburn, who was the moderator for the webinar. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for taking some time out of your Friday to join Academy Securities for our 2023 Geopolitical and Macro Outlook. Very excited to be facilitating this conversation with two of our Geopolitical Advisory Board members, General Bob Walsh and General Spidermarks, as well as with Peter Chur, our head of macro strategy. The last few years have shown us um, just how important focusing on the geopolitical element of volatility is to all of our businesses, to the markets. And last year was a great example of how the geopolitical can blend into the markets. And so today we're hoping to build off of our conversations that we hosted with you all last year to give an outlook for 2023, help arm you all with information, insights that hopefully make this uh, really volatile and chaotic environment feel less chaotic. Um, We're going to go ahead and start off maybe a little bit dark, a little bit scary with what are the worst case scenarios of how the last year's um, big events, how they could play out. What are the themes that we've been focusing on? And if worse comes to worse, how those things can um, evolve? What are the indicators that we should be looking for as geopolitical volatility remains top of mind? So to start us off, we're going to pass it to General Spider Marks to cover that sort of heavy topic. Rachel, thank you very much. Um, Bob, great to see you. Peter, great to see you. And thank you, everybody, for <clears throat> joining us this morning. Um, as, as Rachel indicated, I'd like to start this out with what I think are those potential legitimate challenges moving forward into the year. Now, I've labeled these rather in a dramatic way, only to kind of punch you in the throat and get your attention. But these are kind of the World War III scenarios, but not the World War III scenarios that I would hope, I I hope we can step away from that, but define it a little more precisely in that I think there, there is the possibility, not the probability, but the possibility of expansion of conflict but it would be geographically contained. I don't see the world at war kinetically, but I do see that there are some legitimate possibilities that we have to be very mindful of, but the fallout and the implications along those other elements of power are why I would label it as impactful and a global challenge. So let me just start with obviously what's top of mind in terms of what Russia is doing in Ukraine. I think 2023, is the year of initially increased conflict. Putin thinks he's going to end the war in 2023. He has a, what he has labeled a push for victory. And we've obviously seen what Zelensky, President Zelensky has indicated in terms of he will give no ground. At the tactical level, we see Ukraine making great advances. We see Putin in his push for victory and not having achieved some tactical victories that he has demanded I see the possibility, the real possibility of the increase in criminality, the use of increased artillery. Also, anecdotally, we see the Russians retrofitting denuclearized missiles, no longer missile uh, nuclear tipped, and modernizing those with 20 to 25-year-old mic- uh, semiconductors and and chips that he's taking out of refrigerators and his air conditioners and his dishwashers. I mean, it's quite phenomenal. So you see this challenge that Russia has in terms of its inventory, its demand on the axis of evil to go get 
artillery shells for their 152s and 122s so they can continue this barrage and indiscriminate fire. So what you have is Zelensky with his winning narrative, Putin with his winning narrative, and the possibility for an increase in conflict, ideally, and what we would hope for is that would it would then die down over the course of the year, and there may be the possibility for some type of a ceasefire. Moving on to what I think could be the next possibility, we can't talk about Ukraine and Russia without talking about China and Taiwan. Bottom line up front, my view is that there are enough challenges in Ukraine and the demonstrated incompetence of the Russian military for the Chinese not to engage similarly against Taiwan. We, I think, I think it's fair to say the assessment is if Taiwan were to, in, if China were to invade Taiwan militarily, it would be a ghastly, bloody fight. China would probably ultimately win, but it would be bloody for China, Taiwan, and the United States. And I think the United States, with confidence, I think the United States would get involved. The wild cards on that fight now become Japan and Korea. How are those strong allies going to engage if China pushes and there is a military conflict in Taiwan? Bottom line is, I don't anticipate that, not just in 2023, but going forward for several years. The next possibility then is what's going to happen on the Korean Peninsula. Obviously, you have increased provocation on the part of Kim. We have still a maturing, i.e. an immature leader in the form of Kim, but he has, relative to his father and his grandfather, an increased arsenal of capabilities. He's about to potentially marry up nuclear warheads with missiles. And we've seen the number of missile fires that he's had just over the course of the last couple of months. The South Koreans are going to tire of this level of provocation. And they've also come to the United States and they've opened the discussion for the potential placement in the region of increased U.S. nuclear capabilities, which obviously would be both Air Force and Navy. I'll demure to Bob in terms of what that might look like. But that now really ratchets it up. In other words, is South Korea going to solve this North Korea problem? And how does the U.S. play to try to mitigate when nukes are involved? And they could be simply in terms of threats. Rule number one with the use of nukes is de-escalation. That's where the United States has got to play in and clearly has to play in with both the Chinese and with the Russians. And then finally, I would say in terms of one of these scenarios, increased tension between India and China. India has really, has really charted a very independent path, albeit the world's largest democracy. And you'd think the United States would have a much more influential and fulsome relationship with India. We simply do not. So it's an opportunity for the United States to repair that and advance it. But, China, but India has been going straight to Russia. They have not signed up for the sanctions. And in fact, most of the world's population have not signed up for the sanctions. China, India being the two most populated countries that are not part of these sanctions against Russia. So I see the possibility where Russia and India may get closer, China and India may get more distant. How does the United States play into that? And if there is more military conflict like there was, there was a dust up before the holidays between China and India, in the far reaches, the northeastern reaches of India. How, that, how might that play out and what is the role for the United States not to be a peacemaker, but how does it get involved in that conversation? 
Let, let me stop that right there in terms of the way I see some potential challenges, legit challenges moving into the year. And thank you, sir. And General Walsh, before we move on, would love to hear your perspective on how the current conflicts could evolve or where maybe um, we're overlooking where tension is increasing. Thanks, Rachel. And, and no, I think uh, General Marks has this thing right on. Uh, I can just add some supporting fires to it. And I'll just touch on really uh, Russia and China because I think they did a great walkthrough through the rest of the threats. Um, the first thing I would look at is in Ukraine, um, this thing widening, Putin wants to contain it. The last thing he wants is NATO to get involved. So with all his escalation with the threat of nuclear weapons, uh, to possibly bring, you know, attack NATO supply bases that are supplying Ukraine. The last thing he wants is this thing's kind of gotten out of the box for him already. This didn't go smoothly strategically, and you could look at it as a strategic failure from the Russian standpoint. So I think he wants to contain that and doesn't want to expose NATO to opening this up. Um, looking at China, um, Taiwan is really the only one that I see is a huge possibility that could go to war. Um, in the near term. But I'll also say, I don't think that's going to happen in 2023. And I think a lot of that is, if you look at it, I think President Xi Jinping of China, he's been shaken a bit by what's gone on in Ukraine. Remember, just before, it was only a matter of weeks before the kickoff to the war that Xi and Putin signed their No Limits partnership. I mean, they were on the march to um, really forming this ring of autocracy versus democracy. But since then, he's watched what's happened in um, Ukraine, and I think it's shaken him quite a bit. So what did we see? We saw Pelosi, uh, former leader Pelosi, go to um, Taiwan. What did we see the Chinese do afterwards? Um, they really did this series of exercises where they really surrounded Taiwan with forces. Um, and I think you're seeing their military plan start to shift where you read a lot about invasion of Taiwan, I think the Chinese will operate much more in a gray zone area. And when I say gray zone, not at war, but they're going to blockade Taiwan. And I think what you saw on the maps was the beginnings of that. But I think Xi realizes from Ukraine, he number one needs overwhelming military force. He's going to have to control the information war. Uh, he sees he's going to have to ready his country for sanctions. Um, and then finally, he's going to have to drive a wedge between the U.S. and its partners and allies in the region. And I think when you walk through all those, Putin has failed in almost every one. And I think Xi sees the same thing. And from a uh, standpoint of more on the pessimistic side, where I see this going in 2023 is we are moving much more towards a more chaotic, volatile world um, and moving towards a much more of a cold war. Uh, with both China and Russia, with the focus really being on China. Um, and I really do see that, you know, now we start to see the United States, the Biden administration, trying to form partnerships and alliances to try to deter China. So when we look at a Cold War, you know, back to the Soviet Union, our intent there was not to go to war. It was more of a deterrence capability that what we tried to do, more containment. And I could argue later that Peter could probably talk about this a little bit more. We are starting to do the Biden administration somewhat of a semi-containment policy when it comes to uh, economic um, 
not sanctions, we've already got sanctions from the Trump administration, but also some, you know, things from the Commerce Department, uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S., those kind of things that are starting to restrict China's gain of tech. I'll stop there, Rachel. Before we move on, I'm curious from either General Walsh or General Spider-Marks, uh, as far as the war in Ukraine escalating, um, any thoughts on NATO involvement, new technology that we could be supplying to Ukraine that would escalate that um, conflict? Yeah, you know, you know, Rachel, um, very good question, because the how we have seen the fight in Ukraine unfold <clears throat> from President Zelensky's perspective, from NATO's support of Ukraine perspective, is there's been a mismatch between Zelensky's maximalist objectives. He has indicated that he wants all Russians out of Ukraine. He's looking for a Ukraine that predates the 2014 invasion by Russia, the return of Crimea, the elimination of forces from the Donbass and the reclaiming of that land bridge that Putin created. But the means that are being supplied by NATO are not sufficient to achieve those objectives. So we have this gap. We have a means, we have a, a, a you know, ends and means mismatch that's not been addressed. So something's got to give. And I think the discussion during 2023 will be, we've got to reduce, at least on a private level, what those objectives looks like, look like. That's why I think there is a real possibility to, to John Walsh's point that there will be an effort to contain it on both sides. I don't see that Zelensky is going to have the capability to push Russia back across the border into Russia. I don't know that he's got the capability. Now, certainly it's all possible. NATO could increase, to your question, Rachel, NATO could increase the, um, the supply of capabilities that would, and there have been some discussions about what those resources might look like. Are there going to be more maneuver capability in the form of Bradley's? Will there be a, another an, an, another plus up of um, military hardware that might include Abrams tanks in addition to what NATO is providing in terms of that hardware? Will NATO inject fighter aircraft, which we which has not happened to date? That would certainly escalate and move the means capability up to match the extant uh, objectives that um, the ends that Zelensky has indicated. I don't see that we're at a point where that's going to happen. What we have right now is a sustainment of the fight as it exists right now, supporting Zelensky and his tactical efforts. And we've seen some real increase now with defensive capabilities. But I think as Bob and I would agree, there's really a, a distinction without a difference when we start talking about defensive capabilities or offensive capabilities. Look, Russia invaded Ukraine. Everything Ukraine is doing is defensive in nature, irrespective of the type of kit that's being employed. So the injection of capabilities right now, the support from NATO provides Ukraine this capability to resist and achieve some really significant tactical objectives. But I don't see the operational maneuver capability there yet. That would force Russia out, at least during this year. That's, yeah, it's very interesting. It'll be, um, you know, if if the consensus and definitely the desires to find a, a resolution will be very interesting to see, you know, what sort of escalation and orders de-escalate happens over the next uh, few months and over the year. 
Um, we really spent a lot of time focusing on the uh, conflict as it relates to large strategic competitors. And we have sort of overlooked, with the exception of North Korea, the, the rogue state actors, which we very much often uh, put Iran in that bucket. Are we overlooking the risk that uh, Iran plays into the, the global um, profile? Bob, you want to you go? I can go. Go ahead. Sure, I'll start. Thanks, Spider. You know, I think the first thing is to, to set ourselves on kind of where the Biden administration is and has been and where the Trump administration was and where Iran may go. Um, the Trump administration, through their maximum pressure campaign, remember they killed um, Qusam Soleimani, the IRGC leader in, uh, in Iran, and also, most importantly, I think, they drove these Abraham Accords. And they took the focus away from the Palestinian issue and focused that issue on Iran. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And really brought the Arab states together with Israel and the U.S. to look at Iran as that threat. The, Iran the Biden administration came in and kind of dismissed all three of those. And really we're focused on that joint comprehensive plan of action, getting back to the tables with the Iranians to solve the nuclear um, challenge that was there and, and trying to get the, the Iranians for nukes. That all blew up in the face of everyone with the Ukraine war. Because how can you do a deal with Iran now where Iran is the one supplying many of the weapons to support the Russian effort, military effort in Ukraine? So that you don't really hear much discussion of that. Below that, though, that's really where the Biden administration has wanted to go. You also look at Biden administration's policies in the Middle East um, with, uh, you know, oil, you know, and human rights issues and how Saudi Arabia pulled Patriot missile batteries out because of human rights issues and then trying to get the oil pumping faster. So the whole piece in there is a real challenge. Uh, and I think now when you see a hardline government coming in under Netanyahu in Israel, which is refocusing very much on a much more hardline approach, um, this is going to be a real challenge to walk that fine line of putting Iran out there on an island, but not driving things uh, to war. You know, Bob, I, I have to tell you, that is but really, really well describing uh, the challenges that we have in the Mideast. <clears throat> I think this is the year when there's some declaration, if you will, I don't know how that would, what form that would take, where Chikpoa is dead. The United States does not get back involved. I mean, it can't. The conditions have changed. There would be some significant adjustment to the extant Chikpoa if the United States was going to get back involved. Um, I could see that would be a major challenge. So if the Chikpoa is suddenly gone, enrichment of uranium escalates in Iran, not without its consequences, as you absolutely described. You've got Saudi Arabia that cares about that tremendously, and you've got this new government, this hardline Israeli government that cares about that um, very, very precisely. And the United States would be a part of it. If either of those nations had some type of a, a policy going forward, the United States would either be acquiescing to it or would participate and what that looks like. And I'm not just talking about military action. Um, so you see Saudi Arabia, for example, saddling up, you know, Xi Jinping is in talking to uh, MBS because 
MBS has got a buyer. China is the number three consumer and the number six producer of fossil fuels. He's got a gap. He now has a market where he can meet his requirements. United States can't afford to lose that relationship and that influence, that positive, fulsome relationship that we've had with the Saudis. We can't afford to lose it. And oh, by the way, we've got a bunch of challenges with the Saudis and you've acknowledged those. So how do you how do you negotiate and comp your, compromise your way through so that you have a preponderance of good with, guess what, an existence of evil? That's what compromise is all about. Peter, before we move on from where the extreme risks exist, I want to hear your perspective on the, the geopolitical and how you think it's bleeding into the macro. Yeah, I think that's a great question. You know, I get the luxury of working with these generals and trying to incorporate this. I would say, you know, we spend a lot of time on Russia, but when I'm thinking about this, I probably spend 60, 70% of my time thinking about China. I think how China plays out with us is what's going to drive us in the next year, two years, three years, five years down the road. So that's still kind of my biggest focus, where I want to learn, where I want to understand how we're dealing with uh, China. And I think the, we didn't quite touch on in exact words, but big believer in this concept that business follows the flag. And wherever we plant our flag as a nation, it used to mean it was conducive for business. We've been pulling that flag out. I think we're pulling it out of China, right? It's becoming much more tense on a military side, on high tech side. And companies are doing this and some of it, they're doing it on their own right. I think a lot of companies went and saw in China, the IP theft was greater than they thought. The ability to ever actually you know, sell things into China was min minimal. So I, I think a lot of that pulled away. Then we saw COVID occur where all of a sudden you couldn't even get access to your plant property and equipment. You couldn't even see what was going on in your factories. You were getting shipments restricted. So that's been going on, I think, in parallel. What's going on at the national level? What's going on? I think the one thing that we have talked about is, you know, two or three years ago, if you asked me where that business was going to head, I would have said Vietnam, China, et cetera. And I think a lot of that's actually going to head to Central and South America. And so, which ties into my next thing is, so what am I thinking about aside from China? Less and less about Russia. Obviously, it's an important topic, but I'm kind of a big believer what the geopolitical team is saying, that it's kind of grounded in the status quo, that some of the energy problems are going to be ongoing, but they're never going to go back anyways. Germany is never going to be able to supply, get much from Russia anymore because Russia now has new clients, right? They are selling their energy elsewhere. So that's something we're just going to have to adapt with. We're going to have to live with. I think Europe's doing a decent job. Germany's doing a decent job. So that's lower on my radar screen, despite the amount of time we talk about it. Higher on my radar screen, I think, is Iran and the Middle East is if there's going to be another you know, cluster F word, if you want, that could be the region, right? It's just nothing is going well. Iran is on pace to get stuff. Israel, in particular, cannot let afford them get stuff. So I'm taking more and more of my eye on Iran, even though it's like a lower key in terms of daily discussions. That to me is kind of where I'm looking for blowups. And then things that I'm just trying to get smarter on, I think are India, Central and South America, right? Those I think are where we're gonna have to do business in the future. The big parts of how we, particularly with India, how we compete with China almost directly and for ourselves, for our supply chains, how we do a better job within Central America, particularly Mexico and outside of that through South America, Brazil, Argentina, there's huge opportunities. So that's what I'm watching. Um, and then I think one thing we did not highlight, but I think is absolutely critical. I think one of the biggest mistakes we made in 2022 was weaponizing Russia's dollar reserves. I think the second that we froze Russia's dollar reserves, Xi went to every autocratic nation and said, why do you do so much of your business with the US? We now see that if they call you a pariah, if they don't like your behavior. Now, Russia was extreme, but they're certainly whispering in everyone's ear, 
if they do not like your behavior, they are willing to do economic beyond sanctions. And I think that resonated with a lot of these countries. And I think you're going to start winding up with the U.S. dollar will ultimately still be the reserve currency. But you're going to start running a world where part of the world deals mostly in dollars and the part of the world starts dealing more and more in other currencies, particularly yuan. So I think that's an outcome of this event. And I think that was one thing I didn't like at the time. And I continue to think it has repercussions is that we've now weaponized our dollar and that affects countries thinking towards us. Hey, hey Peter, can I, can I ask a question about that? Um, the way you've described it, if we were to have, <clears throat> could this possibly be a black swan if this year, if we were to define or agree that we may have a divided administration, divided Congress, I mean, we still have not been able to figure out how to work governance where folks kind of work together, number one. Um, if we then experience a recession, you know, you know, however, however that manifests itself. And then to your point about having part of the world now look at the one as its reserve denomination, could there be a further weakening of the dollar that could really cause recession or climb out of a recession if there is one that much more difficult? And could that then lead to some other type of economic malfeasance? You know, so you end up with a challenge that's not kinetic in nature, but it's economic in nature, but it's significant. Yeah. And my worry, it's not directly tied to the dollar, though, I guess that's part of it. I think our own debt levels are a bit of a concern. But what I am worried about is we're very susceptible to supply chains, to natural resources. And if China can start coordinating a restriction on these where it becomes more and more difficult for us to get what we need, I think that grinds our economy to the halt. Clearly, we've seen evidence that it's Russia, China, North Korea are willing to meddle with us, whether it's through cyber, through social and various things. So I think we've got a lot of negative outside influences. And I really do get nervous, though, given the level of you know division, at least between the extremes of both sides domestically, that a recession is a very, very dangerous thing for us. You know, and maybe this is partly I've come from Canada, but when I talk to a lot of people around the world, you know, Spanish people as well, they've seen some of this with the Catlin region, right? It, the desire to separate, the desire to cause internal strife tends to be very correlated with economic weakness, right? I always, you know, half joke about Quebec. When they're winning, when things are going well, everyone wants to go to a bar, have a drink, and talk about how great the Canadians are playing. When jobs become scarce, when jobs are problem, you want to point your finger at someone, and someone's always there to direct you who to point that finger to, and it's often, you know, effectively your neighbor. So I think we've got to be very careful with all this outside negative influence that we don't create economic strife here to the point that we, you know, turn this cauldron pot into a mess again. Yeah. Hey, Rachel, if I can, uh, just uh, touching on Peter's point, you know, as he focuses, number one, on uh, China, I think a key piece that, that I look at is what's going on there. You know, the, the military uses this framework we use called DIME, and we look at the leverage, levers of power of diplomacy, information, military, and economy. When it came to China, we were looking at all this economic growth by China. That was the major thing. It wasn't really militarily. It was their growth globally as an economic power through their Belt Road Initiative. Um, I think the business community in the past, you know, really did not focus on the technology risk with China. Um, and as Peter said, we've been kind of beating that drum and watching what the national security landscape had been saying. And, and really now, in a lot of ways, if you look at what the the Biden administration is doing, we're now in a tech war with China, high tech, you know, on 
And now I think businesses are realizing that China is the strategic competitor. We see companies doing massive restructuring within their companies, business in China, elsewhere. Um, we now see the U.S. government really setting policies, trade policies based on national security, um, setting the terms on trade, you know, uh, terms of trade. We see them building alliances and partnership to line up with that. So I think the thing here to really understand is understanding this national security landscape, that's going to restrict and change how businesses operate. And I think we're seeing that start to really play out. And I would just add one thing. I think it's even corporate, maybe security is not quite the right word, but I think it is. I think people are starting to look at, okay, it costs 80 cents to make a widget here, but a dollar to make a widget here. Clearly the 80 cents is cheaper. Now people are like, whoa, 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 what happens if I can't get access to the widget? What if they're stealing how to make the widgets? What if they're doing this? So I, I think it's going to be difficult for companies to process this, but I think the same thing is going on where you're having to put in almost some subjective criteria when you look at your supply chains, right? How do you value some of these risks? And I think for a long time, we really didn't bother valuing, right? It's like, well, China's cheaper, or this place is cheaper, or this place is faster. And now I think we're trying to put this kind of extra level and it's going to be difficult for companies because it could affect earnings. But I think it's a rea real question people have to have is how do we define more broadly what this holistic cost of this piece is? Um, it's something I think, you know, companies are struggling with, but it's now a conversation and it's accelerating. I think it was, it happened a little bit during COVID, but everyone was scrambling to deal with the supply chains. It happened after Russia invade, but everyone is, you know, scrambling to deal with those issues. And now that we've got this bit of calm, I think this is where the real thought comes down and the strategic thinking of what companies are going to want to look like one, three, five years down the road is occurring. And it's this whole concept, I think, of how secure is your product? What's your true cost of producing it elsewhere or somewhere else? And it's not quite national security, but I don't think it's that dissimilar either. Hey, hey Peter, how you just use the word economic calm? How do you, how do you, is this the calm before the storm or is this kind of a, a resetting that's occurring right now? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of resetting, right? We kind of have this invasion <clears throat> that occurred. That seems to have stabilized for better or for worse. It's not a great place stabilized, but we, I think as a whole, we deal well with stable, right? We can figure out our ways around that. You know, there was all the immediate fear about Taiwan. Um, I think we were always saying that it wasn't likely to be invasion. And so I think that's calmed down. People are able to work on this. So I think it gives us this lull where we fixed a bunch of the, you know, unscrewed some of the problems that came up. But now let's figure out what's a better longer term solution. That to me is always how business plans, how asset managers have to plan is, okay, we deal with the shock. Now, what should we be doing? And I think that's where we're moving into, barring any you know big unforeseen event, that's where we're going to spend the next three to six months as people really planning around the current status quo. Yep, I got it. You know, Bob, you, you made the comment about a um, an anaconda type strategy where China is now employing vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan the concern that I have with that, uh, very true. The concern I see is the miscalculation. You know, the world that you and I grew up in is a bunch of 18, 19, 20-year-olds making significant decisions that have these strategic implications. Um, I could see where that that really could be the result of a strategy that um, that China is now employing and evidencing vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan. So we got to be very mindful. And, and clearly, the United States is not turning its eye away from Taiwan, and the preparedness levels are at significantly high levels. It's just that um, is there a legit? There certainly is a legitimate possibility that you could have a miscalculation. 
I'm actually going to take a quick pause there and start um, taking some questions from the audience because that's a perfect trans that exactly what you just said, General Marks, um, is a perfect transition to one of the questions from the audience. We talked a lot about China's risk as it is to the U.S. from an economic perspective and the friction that um, exists geopolitically and, and from a foreign policy perspective, but the military risk is almost always centered around Taiwan. Looking out two to five to 10 years, do you feel that China poses a legitimate threat to the U.S. from a military perspective? The, the short answer is yes, of course. They have a significantly capable military. They have an expeditionary military. They're an over-the-horizon capability. They weren't forever in their history. <clears throat> they were focused inwardly. Um, that military now has improved and they've increased their capabilities. They've also published what their military wants, what they want their military to look like by 2049 on the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the PRC, not the Communist Party, but the PRC. And so this is the this is the long march, the second long march, excuse me, <clears throat> that China is on to create a capability where it becomes the sole superpower. That's their objective. There can only be one sun in the sky, as they say. And they do this in plain sight. They have published what their pathway looks like in terms of the modern modernization of their military. So <clears throat> if it's going to be a strategic uh, competition exclusively, that is a challenge. Even when we had back to the Cold War days, as Bob was talking about, and kind of a, a redo of that, where we are now demands that we figure, a, figure out where are the areas where we have to have cooperation. We put those national security imperatives clearly on, this, on the table. Those are non-negotiables. But here's where we can start to try to figure out where we work together. Otherwise, we're just ratcheting up the heat in terms of this competition. Yeah, Rachel, if I could just, you know, add to what General Mark said, um, you know, I think um, there's a, a, those drivers that we talked to, it had been the Belt Road Initiative and economics, but behind the scenes to be a global power, you've got to have a military that goes with it. And when Xi Jinping said, even as late as this last 20th Communist Party Congress, that Taiwan will become part of mainland China again, um, even if it has to take military force. You know, you just have to look at the actions that have continued to take place um, in their anti-access area denial um, approach. We saw what they did in the East and South China Sea by taking those reefs and turning them into islands that became surface-to-air missile sites, long-range missile capabilities, long-range bomber sites to keep the U.S. pushing them out. We also see on the diplomacy side um, them conducting all throughout the South Pacific uh, in places like the Solomon Islands uh, and moving on to other island, Pacific Island nations, trying to gain their influence there diplomatically and signing security agreements there. Um, and then when you look at their military capability, when the U.S. strategic commander says we are behind the Chinese when it comes to nuclear weapons capability development. And you hear the chief of naval operations say that an invasion of Taiwan could have occurred in 2022 or 2023. Uh, and you look at all the war games that go on in the Defense Department. And in almost every case, we lose in defending against 
the invasion of Taiwan. From a military standpoint, there's no question about this, that you know we're trying to play catch up in a lot of ways with the new technologies that they've developed and they're playing a home game. So um, again, I go back to you know Biden administration developing regional partners and alliances in a deterrence way, um, just like we're trying to do with these island nations in the Pacific. But we're playing catch up because over the last 20 years, as China had been developing their military, they also were developing their Belt Road Initiative. And as General Marx said uh, so well before, there's a lot of countries in, countries in this world that line up much more with China or Russia, autocratic leaders that are willing to take money from China than they are willing to take goodwill and human rights um, accusations from the U.S. Appreciate that. And I know an interesting topic that we haven't touched on is Turkey. That has been an ongoing theme for the Academy Geopolitical Intelligence Group is what is happening with Turkey, both economically and politically and militarily. It's just been a fascinating um, place to observe. And in the past year has allowed for Erdogan to continue to assert himself on the global stage. Where do you think our relationship with Turkey is going to go in 2023? And where, how do you think Erdogan's position on the global stage will evolve in 2023? Um, I think, interestingly, our relationship with Erdogan has, I, I want to use the term, leveled off. But let's look at the facts. Uh, number one, he's very cozy with Putin. Um, very specifically, he has agreed to provide Ukraine with cluster munitions that the United States has refused to provide Ukraine. Cluster munitions used in an appropriate way or an anti-mobility capability. Yet there have been some legitimate human rights issues about the use of cluster munitions. That's why the United States has said, we're not gonna give them. Erdogan said, I'll give you those and Ukraine can use those. Those become, they minimize the ability of the Russian forces to maneuver and use terrain. It also minimizes anybody's use of that terrain. And there's a clear downside to that. Um, Erdogan may quite ironically end up being the kingmaker in this very specific focus on Ukraine. He could be the one that creates the bargain between Putin and Zelensky that leads to the, the, the at least an initial step, I, I would think, uh, an agreed to ceasefire of some sort that then has a period of marination. And then you maybe eventually can come into some type of a, uh, of a not a peace agreement, but some type of a final settlement. And then I think my the, the view of this is that there will be at some point Russian forces on Ukraine. That's a half a loaf. We've talked about that before. Zelensky has said um, over his dead body, I think there is a real possibility that there is an incentive for both sides to have that kind of conversation. And Erdogan you know, may be the one that leads that discussion and closes that deal, if you will. Yeah, Rachel, you know, if I could just uh, add what Spider said is, you know, in the past, we've always found Turkey as an odd ally of NATO. But what we did see is they were a window into the Middle East. And, and I see what Spider's saying here, they are a window into this Russia conflict with Ukraine. So no question about that. But just turning to the internal part of uh, Turkey, I don't think Erdogan's re-election is a given at this point. Um, you know, the uh, economic crisis that's going on within Turkey, inflation up over 80%. Um, 
what he's trying to do internally to maintain his viability for this election that's coming up in June of this year is to try to create kind of a chaos of what's going on. You know, so you see the military action of potentially going into Syria and the PKK Kurds being a threat and building this buffer zone within Syria. He's now recently started to turn his attention on Greece, which years ago in the Cold War had been there. And so now he talks about, you know, Greece um, militarizing Greek islands in the G GNC, uh, talking about gas drilling and all these challenges over Cyprus. He's bringing it all back up to bring this nationalism back up in his people because the Turks are a very nationalistic people. You look at where they are on the globe in history and how they've been pulled and conquered in both directions, that this is natural to them to have that natural nationalistic feelings. And Erdogan is pulling on that to try to get his reelection. Isn't it interesting, Bob, that you, as you described with Greece and Turkey, two NATO partners that might come to blows. Hopefully not. Um, and, you know, this can be kind of a jump ball, but maybe, Peter, you could take it first um, as it really uh, aligns with some of your themes around re-centralization of supply chains and how Venezuela over the last few years has essentially acted as a um, microcosm for how the global relations are playing out on a larger scale. So one of the questions from the audience is around the ConocoPhillips um, uh, selling Venezuelan oil. So how do you think that plays into the larger um, relationship with Latin and South America? Yeah, I think it's time that we are a little bit more aggressive. As you mentioned, we've talked for a couple of years how Venezuela has been this microcosm of the world. And by that, we mean we say we want Maduro out. Maduro's still there. Russia says they want him in. They saber rattle occasionally, he's still there. And more importantly, both China and India are there extracting the natural resources, telling people they don't care who's in power so long as they can get those natural resources. So, right, and India has followed much along the Belt and uh, Road Initiative that China did, right? So they are going into these areas trying to secure natural resources. It should have been a home field advantage for us. We kind of let it slide. I think it's very good that we're starting to do things there. I think we're going to have to do things in Mexico. We've spoken about this with these generals and also a couple of the others who spent a lot of time in North Africa that our game plan of going into countries and saying, we want X from you and you have to do Y, Z, this, that, and the other thing. And countries kind of looked at us like, why? And that really accelerated once China came in and said, you don't have to listen to them. I've got money, we want resources. And I think for a lot of those countries, it didn't work out great with China, right? China brings in their own uh, workers. China controls the minerals or rights, right? China will, you know, may even effectively use military force if they ever felt the need to do something. So I think there's a huge opportunity, but we're going to have to be pragmatic about this, right? We're going to have to deal with the fact that, yes, there are drug cartels in Mexico. No, we do not want drug cartels, but how do we make business work within that environment and have five and 10-year plans? We're going to have to do something with uh, Venezuela, and if it's Maduro's in charge, Maduro's in charge. We may not like that, but I think we've got to secure these resources. Um, you know, We talk about all these things like a good thing. I think that's a very good thing. At the same time, we've seen in Chile, there's water table issues. So we're going to have to figure out how to work with them properly. And more concerning to me was in Brazil, right? In the, right at the heart of the Russia-Ukraine war, Brazil agreed to buy Russian oil, um, sorry, Russian diesel in particular. And they did that while the leader of Hungary, a NATO member, was in Brazil, and he seemed to condone that. So we've got to do a good job projecting our influence, but also being willing to listen, right? Being actual partners, not 
you know, the father or mother who comes in and tells the kid how it's going to go. More like, what can we do? What are our plans? And yes, we have some issues. You have some issues. And in the past, you know, General Chin talks about, you know, his time in Asia Pacific, but specifically, sorry, specifically Latin America, where they were on the inside with the military leaders there. They knew what was happening militarily, politically, and they could help that. And I think that's where we got to get back is really shaping a destiny where we could have this. Because uh, I think Spider brought out one thing, whether it's military or not, I think we've got to live in a world, we do live in a world where China could disrupt trade much easier than they could in the past, certainly in their region. So anything that's certainly Central America is very difficult for them to do. Even South America, much easier for us to control. So that's where we've got to go. So I think this is encouraging. And I think it's also realistic. Our other thing we've been talking about for years is that the energy companies of the future will likely be the energy companies of today. That you know there was this whole brief period where you could own two windmills or something, and all of a sudden you were a billionaire. And they had no expertise in managing doing this. So I think the companies that have been able to extract energy out of the earth for decades will be the ones that are still doing it decades from now. How they get it, what they do will switch. But we also need a 20 to 40 year plan that's realistic to move from one type of energy source to another. And it's going to be transformative. So all those things to me are really encouraging that we're actually, you know, maybe learn some lessons from what happened in Europe where a lack of planning led and certainly helped enable Russia to invade Ukraine, that we've got to do realistic plans, take advantage of the resources, work with countries that we can, and build for a real sustainable future, not a mythical one. Hey, Peter, how big do these windmills have to be so you can be a millionaire? I got a couple little bird cages with, you know, birdhouses, little windmills. I'm not realizing this millionaire status. You know, we missed uh, early, <laughs> late 2020 when you could, you know, IPO anything. But it's become a little bit more rational again. Hey, you know, one of the things, Rachel, I'll, I'll defer to you, but um, we, we haven't embraced yet cyber and its many implications. I mean, that that is a, a challenge in Des Moines, Iowa, as much as it is on board the uh, a naval ship in the South China Sea um, and, and how we, you know, we've always talked about those domains of war and cyber being that one domain of war that doesn't have any controls or governance around it. Um, are, are there any specific questions that we should probably get to on that? I mean, absolutely. It certainly remains top of mind. Um, I think one of the things, the themes that has kept coming up last year that I'm curious about how you feel it'll play out in this year is we were all surprised that we haven't seen more Russian um, cyber action come out of the conflict in Ukraine. Is that a new tool that could be utilized in 2023? Why didn't we see it last year? And do you think we will this year? Boy, I, I think I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. Yeah, I would just say, um, I think I would just say quickly is one of the things I think we, I said earlier was Putin has capabilities, good capabilities, but he's trying to contain it within um, Ukraine. <clears throat> There's a cyber war going on back and forth inside Ukraine. We may not be seeing it here in the homeland, but he's trying to contain it there so this doesn't grow into a much larger problem where now you have all of NATO attacking him with cyber, which has probably much greater capabilities than he has himself. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, there's there's a narrative, <clears throat> a discourse that the implications of the use of nukes is not dissimilar than the implications for the use of a full, fulsome cyber capability of the unintended consequences of escalation as a result of that. You, you know, when you look at what DOD did recently over the course of the last few years, is they said, you know, no more Chinese IT capabilities. And so 
DOD had a rip and replace capability with things like Lenovo and Lexmark. You've got those printers, you've got those computers, you're going to rip them out at great cost. We're going to inject whatever the appropriate U.S. capability is. It's not a fail safe, but we're still incredibly vulnerable in the homeland. You go to each one of the states, that federal mandate exists for federal agencies only, but you go to the states and you've got those purchasing officers in those states in Tallahassee or elsewhere that previously were going, I just got to, you know, somebody shows up and says, I need a bunch of cell phones. Go grab me some cell phones for all our first responders, whatever, you know, in Idaho or fill in the blank. Those states need to embrace, I think, the example that the national government has taken on, the national footprint saying, we've got to fix this thing or we remain incredibly vulnerable. Those are all back doors into the much broader system. Yeah, I, I think just following up on this, Spider, I think, you know, the Biden administration put restriction on Huawei as the Trump administration did, ZTE, three other telecommunications companies. I mean, what we're seeing is everything is an Internet of Things. The, the DOD is leading in this area because they see the battlefield of the future being a military Internet of Things. You know, our our organizational construct for conducting war in the future is joint all domain command and control. China has developed their multi-domain precision warfare, the same thing. And it's all about information sharing, passing information. It's all about getting into networks. And so we see that on the military side, and it's certainly going to drive U.S. national security policy, which will then go into the business side, certainly in those high-tech areas that can influence what's going on in military capability. Right. And and I, and I look at it, you know, I'm kind of putting my relationship with Peter and that kind of hat on. It's not happening in Albany. It's not happening in Phoenix. It's not happening. You know, those states that have connections to our national security posture, and we are all connected, as you've indicated, don't have those similar restrictions and those oversight requirements. A couple of states have, you know, Georgia and Florida have instituted those legislative uh, initiatives. And they're very simply stated, if you're buying Chinese stuff or you can't no more buying Chinese stuff in this state. I, that's an, that's a good thing. I think it needs to expand. Yeah, I think we're we're definitely seeing that evolve the policy and legislation around um, managing the private um, aspects of where cyber risk exists. I mean, that I think we've we've seen a a pretty dramatic um, shift in a top down approach to that. Um, be very interesting to see how that continues to evolve this year. Uh, Peter, want to give you. The last and then last nine minutes, we have um, a chance to give us a purely market outlook. And if I may, um, within your market outlook, can you answer two questions from the audience um, that we have yet to touch on that I, that I think will be relevant to your overall um, comments? Two questions as they relate to China: um, Why haven't we seen the U.S. or China respond to the U.S. on export controls around semiconductors? And then. The other question and a more broad perspective, as China opens up, lifts their zero COVID policy, how do you think that's going to impact inflation and in corporate earnings? Yeah, it sounds great. I'll try and answer those two questions directly. I think they feed into a lot of other things we're looking at. So I think this reopening is getting a little bit more hype maybe than it warrants. You know, China is definitely reopening, but it's not from a completely closed down state, right? Factories and things have been working through. So I'm not sure whether it's 20% more reopened, 40% more reopened. So I think the level of reopening is interesting. 
Um, but it's not as important as it would have been a year and a half ago when they were 90% shut down. The other thing, and I think this is more problematic, is right now our inventories are very high, right? We are effectively awash with goods and particularly cheap Chinese goods. So I'm not sure how many more Chinese goods coming in really help us at this stage. And when I look at, you know, talk to most companies, I would say we went from supply chains being top of mind a year and a half ago to still being an issue to something, yeah, they're still dealing with and it's not perfect, but that is not their biggest concern. So I think this is one of those situations that a year and a half ago, China announced reopening, boom, the world explodes, stock explodes, that's all great. I think now it's relatively de minimis because it's been partly open. Companies have adapted supply chains around, plus we're, you know, basically choking on inventory in some sectors. So it's just not that as useful. If you really think that Chinese consumption is going to increase, that would be great. But China really shows very little evidence of buying our goods. They've got their own issues with um, their real estate. They just had to cut pretty dramatically the price of Teslas in China. So I think this is a relatively non-event. Yes, I'm watching conference. Some of these metal prices go higher. And I can't tell whether that's real demand or that speculators hoping there'll be a real demand. So they're running that up. So on a scale of one to 10, I put it kind of about a three or maybe a four in terms of importance. I'm not that excited about it. I think the semiconductor question is a little bit trickier, um, but it goes hand in hand with a couple of things we've been talking about that are recurring themes. China had the 2025 policy, which never went away. It's still there. They just don't talk about it as blatantly, but they want to be self-sufficient on semiconductors. As they've been, you know, dealing with Taiwan or however you want to, they've been working hard to build up their own high-tech semiconductor business, not just the cheaper, easier second and third generations, but really like newer stuff so that they can compete with Taiwan, right? Part of China's strategy with Taiwan is to put pressure on the military, politically and economically, and the economically is going to come from them developing their own semiconductor businesses. So I think in some ways, this just lets Xi internally say, hey, I told you we need to invest in semiconductors. We really want to do this. We're going to go forward. And then tie into the whole global economy. I think semiconductors are, I think we're going to see what I'm going to call, let's call it, we had five steps forward and we're going to take two steps back. We saw this massive growth. A lot of it was fed by the stimulus, these huge stock market valuations. Everything that private equity turned to gold, those companies then were able to spend a lot of money. So I think we're going to see a significant pulling back on semiconductors. And two things that I think, three things that I think are super important is all these companies were able to raise money and they just went and spent that money, right? It wasn't about cash flow. It wasn't about, it was just showing about growth. So you've seen, I think, a lot of companies, whether they're public or private, really had growth at all mantras. So they were able to spend, they spent a lot on semiconductors. Two is, I think what you're seeing is response to the supply chains, right? It's not like companies sat here for the last two years dealing with supply chains and not changing anything. So what I'm hearing and seeing is there's less demand or less interest in really specialized semiconductors, right? The things that really drove the margins were exciting. But if you were making a vehicle and you had 20 individual chips and one of those chips didn't show up, you were out of luck. You could not deliver this vehicle. So I'm hearing a lot of people are re-engineering their designs to have fewer, they'll have many more chips. So maybe you had 20 chips, now you have 30 chips, but you might only have three types of chips and you might have 10 of each. So imagine just these huge bins of the chips that you use. So it won't be quite as efficient, but I think it'll be less profitable for semiconductor companies if we go down. And that's where people just, I don't think are thinking enough about 
there's always an action and a response. And the response to supply chain and chip shortages isn't just to, you know, for the chip companies to make chips closer, make chips differently. It's for the manufacturers to say, do I need this many chips? Do I need this specialized of a chip? What are the trade-offs? So I think that's going on. And then I think the final part to me is big data. And part of this goes part and parcel where if you saw a stock go from $5 to $20 to $50 to $100, and they were big data, you're like, I need big data. I need big data. I need to figure out how this works. All of a sudden, those stocks have come down, and you've been sitting there as a senior management for the last year and a half, like, A, it was really expensive to get the data into this system, or it's still expensive, and B, I'm not quite sure I understand what the machine's telling us. Maybe it's right, but I have a lot of difficulty going to the CEO and saying, let's follow this, and he says, why? Well, because this little black box told us this is the right strategy. And so I think that's difficult, and then it's hard to like, well, how do you contingency plan around that? What happens if something changed? I don't really know how to contingency plan because the black box told me what to do. So I think there's a little bit of a pullback. We're In 10 years, we're going to have more technology than we do to, today. But I think for the next year or two, I think there's going to be a little bit more caution on spending, how we spend in that sector. So I think that's pulling back, which allows, I think, China to be a little bit more aggressive and not responding to us. Plus, I think China doesn't want to show we're weak. So that, I would say, is my big fear for our economy is a really tech-driven recession. The best way that I can explain this, I think, is if you go back to 2015 and 16 and think about the economy, it was energy-related, right? Energy prices were falling off a cliff. Anywhere that energy had been built out, the Dakotas, Minneapolis, Minnesota, all these areas, the regional property values were shrinking, job losses were occurring, and it was very tied to that industry, and it moved a little bit and regionally, right? So every one of these hubs becomes a great place for people to own businesses, for lawyers, for accountants. And it was those hubs that got hit most hard, and the rest of the economy did reasonably well. And I think we're seeing a similar sort of thing potentially play out here, where it's going to be very tech-related, and it's going to be this adjustment to the excesses potentially of the last two years. And again, I'm saying it's five steps forward or two steps back. It wasn't a little progress. We made huge leaps and bounds, which is why I think it's somewhat natural to see a little bit of a pullback. On the other side, I think what keeps, and that would be very deflationary to me, um, you know, half jokingly, but, you know, the people who sold all these crypto parties in Miami, like, they're out of a job right now, or certainly it's not as fun and as exciting, because you don't have Lambos pulling up to every hotel every single day for the next crypto party. So, you know, being somewhat facetious, but there was a lot of money being spent by those industries. So that would be my deflationary risk, and for pulling the U.S. into a worse recession. On the other flip side is, I think we've talked about India a lot, but I think India could create another commodity type boom like we saw in 2004 to 2008 when China was emerging, but this will be less beneficial, whereas at least China was consuming goods largely to produce them and sell them back to us. India is you know, on the precipice of potentially huge growth, right? Their population is about to surpass China. They have much better demographics, right? It's a better mix of men and women. It's a better mix of age. And they were one of the fastest growing economies and fastest consumers of raw resources pre-COVID that started back up. And it's very telling, right? They have said no to sanctions to Russia. They have dealt with Venezuela longer than we've been doing. They are fully aware that the Indian economy needs natural resources to grow, and they will do that. So it, I don't know whether they'll be successful. I think they've got some of their own political issues. They've got some of their own issues internally they have to deal with. But if I was worried about another really resource-hogging um, commodity boom, it would be out of India. And I think India is one where we've got to get our act together because what I hear from a lot of people is, I think there's just this massive disconnect 
particularly between the older members of our government who kind of view India and treat India as this third world country and India who views themselves as an emerging superpower. And we wonder why our policies don't take shape or form. It's because I think we're communicating at a very different level. Like we're treating them like this two-year-old and they're a teenager about to emerge and you know go on their own. And I think that's something we have to fix. But to me, that's if we get this kind of commodity boom, it's going to be India focused and it's not going to be as beneficial to us as the China commodity boom, which led to cheap goods for us, because this will be India growing and developing a domestic economy. So that's kind of my juxtapositions of the two extremes. It's very interesting. And in, in the we are out of time, but in the closing comments in the last few moments that we have, if I can, uh, Peter, General Marks and General Walsh, if we could tie a little bow around this whole conversation in the 2023 outlook. Peter, let's start with you. Generally speaking, are you optimistic or pessimistic about 2023? I think we are going to have a more secure nation two, three years down the road. Our supply chains will be better. There'll be more in our control. We will be less at the mercy of people for PPE. We will have better jobs, more stable jobs that will let us grow. So I think we might have a, you know, a round of hiccups for the next three to six months. I think we're going to have to accept three to 4% inflation in the longer run, but that's going to be good because it's tied to jobs. It's tied to national security, individual security. So I'm ultimately optimistic of where we'll be two, three, four years down the road. We might have some hurdles to get there, but all these things are in the right step. And we're just going to have to accept a little bit of inflation is good if it's for the right reasons. General Marks, you're muted. Sorry, folks. I look at what happened in 2022 as a where we learned and we, we we gained a lot of scar tissue. And as a result of that, <clears throat> I think globally we are better postured. We're more wide-eyed, clear-eyed about what our key initiatives need to be. I'm less optimistic that domestically we're going to have an administration that's going to get its act together because we're still too polarized. We're still too distant in terms of our ability to agree in terms of where those initiatives need to be. General Walsh. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. I think um, I see really the glass half full in the sense that what's going on with the chaos in the world, it's causing really a bipartisan, bicameral approach to the U.S. needing to assume its role as a global leader. Uh, so whether it's economically, diplomatically, or militarily, I think on both sides of the aisle, this administration, the previous administration, see the, the challenge to the U.S. continuing to be a global leader, that it's forcing us to try to work better together. I know there's challenges with this, as, as uh, Spider said, but also with other nations. And that's why I see this positive us trying to step out and be that global leader that we once were. Well, as always, thank you, gentlemen, so much for your time, for your thoughts, and uh, for your comments today. To our audience, thank you for joining us, for giving us time at the start of your year and on a Friday. Um, if you do have any questions, please reach out to us at info at academysecurities.com. We are always just an email, an IV chat, or a phone call away. So thank you very much, and have a great weekend. Bye.